I'm the youth pastor here. I get the awesome privilege of sharing uh, God's word with you. And uh, we're going to jump right in. We're uh, still in the series, Back to the Start. Look at the basics, the foundational aspects of Christianity. Kind of figure out what is Jesus calling us to do at the bare minimum. Because usually that's the biggest thing that he's calling us to do. So we're going to jump right into Matthew 21. If you got a Bible, a Bible please turn it to Matthew 21. Uh, I'm really excited about today's message. I'm not even going to tell you what we're talking about because you might leave. So uh, the title is called Metal Chairs, just in case you're not confused already. So Matthew 21, I, I want to try and approach this story in a fresh, unique way. People read this story and go, oh, I know what he's talking about. And if you're reading it before me, shame on you. And if you're reading it before me and you're reading it and thinking, I know what he's going to talk about, then I'm totally going to blow your mind because this is something that uh, blew my mind when I read it. Okay, this is the last week of Jesus' ministry. Uh, last week of his life, actually, he's going into Jerusalem. He's on, you know, the Hosanna song. He's on a donkey, not a unicorn, not a, a divine limo. He's on a donkey, a colt, going into Jerusalem. And they're, and they're, they're talking, and, and this is the last week of his life. He's on a mission to die on the cross for our sins. He's going. He knows what's going to happen in the last week of his life. And it's Passover for the Jews. A big celebration of feast once a year, a whole week, where the Jews would celebrate what God did, how they brought, how he brought Israel out of Egypt. You know, Pharaoh, the ten, uh, the, uh, ten plagues. Well, 400 years of slavery, the Jews were freed by God. So they get together every year, celebrate, they make sacrifices, they, they give offerings, and they worship God in the temple. And people come from all out of the area, and, and they can't bring sacrifices with them because it's so far. So they buy sacrifices. So people usually sell the sacrifices outside the temple in the courtyard. And so Jesus walks into the temple, and he sees them selling the sacrifices in the temple, like where they would pray. And this is not usual. He sees them selling the sacrifices right there where you would pray, where you would worship God. Now, most of us know the story, and uh, this kind of ticks Jesus off, but Jesus doesn't just go, oh, you guys, Bobby, you shouldn't be doing that. That's, that's, that's a no-no on you. You're going to get a divine spanking. He's not just like mild. I mean, Jesus goes buck wild. You don't see, like, you don't see Jesus like this in any other aspect of the Bible. I mean, he starts pushing people out, turning over tables, makes a whip out of cords, and starts pushing people out, throwing things out, overturning the money, because they were selling the prices, jacking the prices high, and then keeping the profit. So Jesus says, this is not what the temple's supposed to be. You guys are doing it all wrong. It's crooked business. And he gets, he goes buck wild. Jesus gone wild, goes crazy. He goes nuts. And then this is what the message version says, verse 14. After he pushes everyone out, he flips over tables. It says, Now there was room for the blind and crippled to get in. They came to Jesus and he healed them. Now here's what I'm thinking. This is, go with me. Don't stone me if I'm wrong. Bible college was expensive, but I don't think it taught me everything. Uh, so at first glance, it looks like Jesus is cleansing the temple of the dirt. If you, if you have a Bible, it says Jesus cleanses the temple. This is where he gets sent to the temple, sees dirt, uh, crooked business, people doing things that's not supposed to be done. And so we think, wow, he's cleansing the temple, making it perfect, making it holy, making it what it should be. And that's true. But I think Jesus is really making room for the dirty to come in and get cleansed. 
So we think, wow, Jesus is making it perfect because the church is supposed to be perfect. The temple of God is supposed to be perfect and clean and spotless and no dirt, no specks. And Jesus is reversing the table and goes, I'm going to get all this dirt out, all this corrupt business out so I can have room for the dirty to come in and get cleansed. He wasn't just angry because the temple was being used as a place for crooked business. He was he said that. He said, this is a place for prayer, not a place for, for a, a cave of, of robbers and stealers. He wasn't just angry because of the crooked business. He was angry because they were making it so the poor, the needy, the people who wanted to experience God couldn't get in. It says, now there was room for the blind and crippled to get in to the temple to celebrate and encounter the life God offers. Now stick that in the back of your mind. We're going to jump to Luke 5. We're going to connect these two stories. Uh, this, is, this goes back to the first week of Jesus' ministry. Not his life. He didn't start ministering as a baby. He probably could have. But this is the first week of his ministry, age 30. That's when Jewish rabbis would start teaching and going out, getting disciples. His first week. So we go from his last week to his first week, three years prior. He's beginning his ministry. He's traveling around, getting people to join the Jesus team. And he goes and sees this, this, this tax collector, this IRS agent. And no one likes IRS agents in America, and no one likes tax collectors back in Jesus' time, uh, uh, Jesus' time, because they stole money. They ripped off the Jewish people, j- tack, uh, jacked the taxes high, and then took the rest of the money for themselves. They were traitors. No one liked them. The religious people called them dirtbags and sinners. That's my paraphrase, dirtbags. I have to get it in every single sermon. So he passes by Levi, and he goes, hey, Levi, come, come join my team. Drop the money, come join my team. And what does Levi do? Oh, my gosh. Okay, I'm going to follow you. He follows him. Later that night, he's having dinner with Levi. The religious Pharisees, the, the pastors of that day, come and see Jesus eating dinner with all these sinners or tax collectors, IRS agents. And he said, and, and, and they grumble and complain and go, under their breath, why is Jesus always hanging out with sinners? Why is he always hanging out with the losers, the dirtbags? Why is this rabbi, this teacher, this Jewish person who knows God's word, why is he hanging out with the rejects? Why is he always doing that? And this is what Jesus says next. It's up on the screen. Should be at least. Those who are well have no need of a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to invite those who think they are righteous, but the broken sinners to repentance. See, Jesus' mission was simple. Invite the broken, the, the needy, the sinner to repent, to change life, to experience God's love. That was Jesus' mission. To invite those who didn't have God and to bring God to them. He cleans out the temple, making this statement that the house of God, the church, the place where people worship God, that is a place for broken people to find healing, not for the healthy people to selfishly profit. And if the church is not a building, we know this. Pastor Terry does a great job of explaining this. Pastor Blake does. If the church is not a building, because the church isn't a building, it's a, it's a community of imperfect people being perfected by Jesus. Amen? It's a community of people, not a building. If the church is a, a community of, of people, then we are to be a people on a mission to invite the broken, the, the needy, the outcasted, the rejected, the, the addicts to experience the love and life Jesus offers. If that was the purpose for the house of God and the house of God was the church back then and we are the church now, we have that same mission. It's ditto. Our mission isn't to take up room in the church, enlarging our our mind on all these spiritual facts and getting more spiritual gold stars on our chart. That doesn't do much 
to those who need God outside. And our focus can't just be, what can God do for me? What can the pastor give to me? What can the worship pastor give to me? What can these people give to me? It has to be, at some point in your life, what can God do through me? Not just what can God give me? Even though that's good and you, you should look for God to fulfill your needs because that's the only one who can, but it has to change. I was up in Oregon this past four years going to college, and I went to a college group called Onyx House. Pastor A.J. Swoboda, he's planning a church now in Portland. Awesome man of God, young guy. And we're sitting in a service, 200 chairs, and they're all metal. They're all metal. Just the junkiest chairs you can think of. Not comfy, cold, stale, rigid, hard metal chairs. Not the comfy chairs you have right now. And I don't even have a butt and it feels nice, okay? Like, you don't have to, be, I mean, it, it feels not. I shouldn't have said that, but it, it feels nice. <laughs> they're, they're comfy. Metal chairs aren't. And this is what he says. He says, someone came up to me today, uh, he's preaching a sermon, and said, why do you have metal chairs, AJ? Why not get the comfy chairs? It's not that comfy. And AJ, with the fear of God in his eyes and the wrath of God, you know, he, he kind of built, built it up and said, you know what? I always want to keep the metal chairs inside here because they remind you at the end of the service, you're going to eventually have to get up and go out. Because if you have the comfy chairs, you get too comfortable and you want to stay here. I don't want you to stay here. I love you, but I want to love you so much that you go out. So the metal chairs remind you to go out, to not get so comfortable. There's a quote that Pastor Terry always says. Uh, I love it. Um, the church is a hospital for the broken, not a vacation home for the saints. It was resting home, but I think vacation home makes more sense. You see, you don't stay in a hospital after you were healed. Like, you're whole, you're healed, you're, you're all bandaged up, you're good to go. You don't stay inside there mooching off the free jello and the weekly back rubs. <laughs> you don't just stay there going, oh, this is nice, I'm getting free back rubs, I'm getting people sponging me down. I mean, I got, I got it all golden. I don't have to do anything. And you stay inside there when you're healthy. You don't do that. But when we get too comfortable in church, when we get too comfortable at wherever we're at, we tend to lose urgency, we tend to forget the mission, and we stay where we're at, and we don't move. Because we're comfortable. I do it all the time. I get comfortable about church, the cheap coffee, the great worship, the good speaking, um, the semi-nice people. I like it. I'm joking. Somewhat. So I like it. It's warm. It's comfy. It's, it's safe. And I get comfortable, and I want to stay here. And I love this quote. I don't know where, uh, who said it, but it says, God comforts the disturbed and disturbs the comfortable. He brings comfort and wholeness to people who are disturbed and wrecked, but he wrecks the lives and shakes things up for those who are comfortable. I don't know about you, but this message is for me. And I need Jesus to shake me up so that I wouldn't just be a healthy person in a hospital, taking up rooms and leaving no room for the wounded to get in and get healing. Because too often we can take up the seats, take up, and I'm not saying don't come to church, but we can take up, metaphorically, whatever you want to take it, take up the room in the church, take up, our, our, put our agendas before everyone else's, be comfortable here, and leave no room for people who need to get in and get healing. Because we've already experienced Jesus. We kind of make a barrier, uh, a, a extended stiff arm saying, uh -uh, this is my place, my territory. And people go, I don't want that person to come to church. I don't want my brother to come to church. He's a dipwad. I don't want my aunt to come. I don't want my neighbor. And we go, no, I, I like it. This is safe and comfy. I don't want these people to come in and love Jesus. That's going to be weird. 
I've been to three funerals in the last month and a half. And the ages were 25, 31, 37. And I was sitting there yesterday watching the dad that lost his daughter sit there right here looking at the screens for probably a half an hour, 45 minutes after watching pictures of his daughter because he was never going to be able to see her again. I didn't know the girl. I went to school with her, but I didn't know her. And I didn't need to know her for God to wreck me at that moment. Life is very short. You never know when it's going to end. Those people are under 40 years old. Two from cancer, one because of a car crash. Life is very short. Sin is very deadly. And Jesus is the only cure. If you don't understand that, if you don't realize that, then you lose all sense of urgency and then you float through life with a a layer of apathy surrounding everything you do. He was wrecked because he was never going to be able to see his daughter again. But she believed in Jesus and so, so did the other two people. And you, that's the only way you can have hope. That's the only way you can have urgency is to understand that life is short and sin is the number one killer of people. Not cancer, not alcohol, not pornography, not uh, bad driving, not hurricanes. Sin is. But we look at the physical aspects going, oh, eat healthy, do this, and, and everything is good. I want you to eat healthy. I want you to be safe. I want you not to you know, live right. But look at the deep problem, the underlying problem. It's sin who eats people, who eat, it eats people up from the inside out. You can't see it. It's like cancer. It's hidden. And then one second you don't see it. Next second you're fighting for your life. See, reaching people for Jesus is not an option for us if we love Jesus. It's not an option. He doesn't give us an a, a, a option like, here, plan A. Just be in the church, relax, get the free coffee, the good message, and hang out and, and build up your mind full of, of Jesus' knowledge. And then plan B, if you're really good enough and risky enough, go out and tell people about me. It's not an option. Not when life is so short and when sin is killing off people every day. And when you have the cure for that disease. Charles Spurgeon, uh, one of my favorite preachers, I like dead preachers more than live preachers usually. Uh, except for Pastor Terry. He rocks my world every Sunday. But uh, Spurgeon said this, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. He's saying, look, if you're a Christian, it's in your DNA, it's in the word, little Christ. And you know what Christ did? He reached people who didn't know Jesus, who didn't know God, who, who were outcasted by society. And if you call yourself a Christian, you have to be a missionary. Not going to Mexico and Brazil and all the slums. You can be a missionary right here to your family, to your friends. But you have to reach out and not to stay inside the church. See, God never calls us to comfort. Never promises comfort. He calls us to be like Jesus. He never says, I promise you, you're going to be comfortable. You're going to have a warm life because you love me. He says, no, you're going to be like me. 
If I had the last word in it, you're going to be like me. And that's not always comfortable. That's not always the easiest path. So what did Jesus do? Excuse me, what did Jesus do? I mean, if he calls us to be like Jesus, what did he do? Because he was God in the flesh. A little easier to reach out to people than we are. We're just a bag of skin and bones sometimes. He was God in the flesh. We go, well, he did it. It was easy for him. You can't compare it. Well, we'll see. How many of you know or have heard of the term evangelism? When I hear that word, it, it sends awkward and stale vibes down my spine. And I, I kind of back off. Like when you say, you need to learn evangelism, I'm like, what? What? Don't say that word around me. It's the E word. And people kind of cringe on the outside not knowing Jesus. Like evangelism, oh, not cool, not cool. People shudder. And this is this picture up here. We're going to discuss about this in a couple seconds. To most people, this is what comes to mind when they hear the word evangelism. This is the next slide, the picture. This is what comes to mind. Stuff like this. It's funny, but very not, but not, but not funny because when people say, oh, evangelism, which means sharing the good news of Jesus, this is what comes to mind. I'm, I, I'm not going to read that stuff. You can read it for yourself, hopefully. Uh, you can just tell just by the signs that it's not the best form. But uh, I want you at your tables right now. We, we love doing this discussion time, and this is for everyone. Uh, if you're not, um, if you don't feel comfortable sharing, say pass. We're not going to judge you. Totally cool. But I want you guys just to uh, converse, take like one or two thoughts, make a real quick four to five minutes on like what comes to mind when you see this. What's your experiences? What's your opinions, your emotions? I mean, go ahead. If you have to cuss, cuss. I don't care. Just tell me the honest truth. Tell your, the people around you the honest truth. What, what comes to mind when you see this? What do you think? How do you think it goes? What do you think it does? How effective is it? Whatever. I want you guys to share it in the next four to five minutes. I'll come back up and we'll, we'll uh, continue. But just take the next four to five minutes around your table. Let me ask you guys a question. Uh, how many of you guys have ever seen that in person? This kind of stuff. Okay, wow. Gosh. This is, what this, kind of, this is what this sort of evangelism looks like. Let's say you knocked on the door of someone's house and said, hey, you want to get married to Jesus? And they're like, huh? Well, I don't know. Who is he? You go, he's God. They go, uh, not, not really. I don't know him. And you go, okay, well, you're going to go to hell. And they go, okay, okay. Can, can I at least go on a date with him? And you're like, no, he has no time for that. We, this kind of evangelism, we sell Jesus like he's a George Foreman girl on an infomercial. Like, quick, accept Jesus now, call in the next 10 minutes, and you'll get a little bit more forgiveness than you need for all those horrible sins you commit in secret. <laughs> like, come on, call now, you get more. And we sell him, rush him, push him in front of people's face like, you need Jesus. <laughs> And we wonder why people are so offended and pushed away by the message of Jesus. We take the best, the greatest, the most amazing news, shocking news in the world, and we make it the hardest thing to swallow and accept. The next picture is, I think, the way Jesus did evangelism. See, Jesus loved eating food. Amen. And Jesus loved hanging out with people. You don't see Jesus walking around streaking Jerusalem with some signs on his back saying, you repent now for Jesus is here. I'm me. <laughs> he doesn't do that. 
If you go to John 1, not now, you can go later, but the Christianity, it started with two guys having a sleepover at Jesus' house eating a McDonald's Happy Meal. Literally, it started with two guys just hanging out at Jesus' house eating. He picked up two disciples, said, you want to follow me? They followed him. They went and said, hey, we want to come over for dinner. They had dinner that night, and then Christianity started, and now we're here 2,000 years ago with over billions of people because it started with Jesus eating dinner with people. And I'm not trying to emphasize, I'm not trying to emphasize you have to eat dinner to talk about Jesus, but just be with people. Just be with people. It's simple. He spent time feeding, healing, talking to. And the biggest thing, which probably we suck at, is listening. We want to talk. You know what? The best way to share the gospel is not to talk, it's to listen. Because we're all, we're worried about talking all these scriptures and verses. Oh, I got to show them the, the seven points of salvation. No, no. Hear their story and just be with them. If you're a Christian, if you have God in you, be with them. See, too often, me, you, us, we overanalyze everything, and we end up writing a book on it. Like, well, we have to write a book on evangelism because the Bible this has, this doesn't have the right information inside here. I've got to add more to say. And so I'm going to add seven steps that the Bible doesn't talk about because God was kind of off his rocker. So we make it seven steps to reach non-believers. And then when it doesn't work, we add more steps, ten steps. And the next thing you know, a thousand years later, we have a whole book. Again, another Bible. Because we don't have enough and we make it so complicated and we overanalyze. And you have to understand this. Jesus never calls us to do complicated things. He calls us to do hard things, but they are simple. Don't confuse difficulty with complexity. We go, oh, it's too hard. It's too complicated. No, no, no. Yeah, it's freaking hard, but it's simple. We go, no, it's too hard. I can't do it. It's complicated. So many things. No, no, no. Jesus says love people. You can't get any simpler than that. Jesus says, be my hands and feet. We go, no, but Jesus, you're wrong. I need to do this and this and this. And he goes, no, just love people. It's simple. But we think it's too hard and we build roadblocks for ourselves. We don't need people to stop us. We stop ourselves. Paralysis from analysis. We're frozen because we analyze so much stuff. This is gonna, I'm going to end it right here. If you guys can flip to Acts uh, 1. This is the best way I, th- I think to end it. Uh, Acts 1. This is right after Jesus died. He resurrected. This is the last conversation Jesus has with his disciples. So we know that's pretty important if it's the last thing he says before he goes back up to heaven to his father. It's the last thing he says. And if you guys want to read it on your screens or in your Bible. He says, So when they had come together, the disciples with Jesus, they asked him, Lord Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Make everything right. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere. And I didn't really get the connection between the, hey, it's none of your business and the, you were going to receive power. I mean, disciples probably like, what? We asked you a question about restoring the kingdom and you say it's none of our business and then you talk about the spirit power thing? It doesn't happen often, but I think the disciples were kind of right on this level. They understood that Jesus was going to restore the kingdom. They just didn't understand it was going to be through them. And too often we look at Jesus going, when are you going to restore the kingdom? When are you going to bring God back to people? When are you going to do a miracle, a revival? And too often I go, come on God, do something big. And God's saying, you restore the kingdom. 
We go, no, but God, you're supposed to save people. And Jesus says, no, you save people because I'm going to work through you. He says, you will have God's spirit living in you. You restore the kingdom. You bring life where there's death. You bring light where there is darkness. You bring freedom where there is sin. You bring joy where there's no hope. You bring that because God's living in you. No seven-step process, no booklet to read. Just live by God's spirit and be Jesus. You, if you believe in Jesus, God dwells in you. You are a temple of God. And Jesus is saying the same thing to you and I today. Christian, you are a temple of God. He lives in you. Christian, you are loved by God. Now go and love others. Christian, you have the strength of God when you are weak and you don't think you're perfect enough to share Jesus. You have the strength of God in you, the power to be my witness. Christian, you don't have to sell Jesus to people. You just need to remember to be Jesus to people. You don't have to sell a product. You don't have to make it flashy. Just be with people. And God's spirit in you will come out. People don't go, when they have cancer or terminal disease, people don't go, hey, I have a cure. I have it right here. I'm taking it. It's getting me better or when you have a cold or something. You know how you know when people are getting better? You can tell it at who they are, the energy, the level, their face, their expressions, everything. When people see you, you don't need to go, I have Jesus, and you wear Christian t-shirts and everything. No, no, no. They, they should be able to see the cure, a difference in you, an energy, an activity, something that people don't have, but you have. They see it in you, and they want that because you are being Jesus, not trying to speak or sell Jesus. So may we be a church that makes room for the broken, the needy, the poor, the addicted, the lost, the people who need God the most. Look, at we have God, folks. Most of you, you're connected with Jesus. You have God living in you. You have a connection. There's people out there. Don't, don't, they don't just have homes. They don't just have no families. They don't have God with them. And you know how to bring God with them? Be with them. Go out to them. Don't just stay inside here. Because if we stay inside here, we're going to clog up the channel and people aren't going to be able to come in. May we be a church that invites others on this life-changing journey with the God of love, Jesus. I'm going back to the start.